It's good to see a lot of Chiefs gear out there today. I suspect we'll see more next week. I, I do need to say uh, I, I selected today to wear this particular jersey because uh, this jersey has bad juju. It just has bad luck. I, I wore this Super Bowl in 21, and we lost. I wore it at the AFC Championship game last year. We lost. So I'm inflicting it on you today because there's no game, and everything will be fine. In the earlier service, I said this is my bad luck jersey. There was an audible gasp in the room. It made me alarmed for the theology in general of the church, uh, but uh, we moved past it. I'm glad you all didn't gasp. That's good. Now, before, um, before I begin, uh, I do want to just say this about uh, the ministry of the Gideons. If you're a, a, a young man, young family uh, here uh, today, I, we, we need you, the world needs you to be the next generation of Gideons. Our Gideons in North America are aging out, and the, the ministry is carried entirely by lay people in the business world. Uh, pastors can't be Gideons. So if, if, uh, if what you have heard today about the ministry of the Gideons is something uh, that appeals to you, I'd encourage you to pick up one of those uh, pamphlets on your way out if you didn't pick one coming back in uh, because we need uh, the next generation of Gideons, all right? So that's my plug for you. Last summer, Julie and I were fortunate enough to visit London and Paris for our COVID-delayed 30th anniversary, and I I like when I go to new countries, new cultures, I like uh, trying their foods. And so, I, I mean, I, I I don't anticipate necessarily liking them. I just want to say I've, I've been able to do it. So, for instance, when, we were, when I was in Brazil years and years ago, I ate the hump of a Brahma bull, uh, which uh, you all are city people. You have no idea what a Brahma bull is. But tell me, I, I, trust me, it's not necessarily great. But I had one of those. In China, I had a wide variety of items that uh, I, I, I couldn't fully identify, but I ate them with glee and all of that. So in going to, to England, I had determined that I would have to try that English delicacy, mushy peas. Now, we got our opportunity our very first night there. We went to this pub off of Piccadilly Circus to have their fish and chips, which are every bit as good, by the way, in England, as you may have heard. And right there, just splattered on our plate was our first opportunity for mushy peas. Seriously, they're gross. I mean, they look gross, and they taste terrible. I, I, I have a video of my wife sampling them. Her face is no less worse than the face I made when I tried my first bite. Sometimes when I try new food, I get uh, why other people might like it. I don't, but I get why you do. Uh, seriously, after having mushy peas, if you claim to like them, you're either psychotic or lying. That's all I've got to say. But here's the thing, I've done it, I've done it. I've had my mushy peas and I don't ever, ever, ever have to eat them again. Now I've been in ministry for almost 37 years now, long enough to know that when it comes to the five habits of a Jesus follower that we build our ministry around here at Blue Valley and upon which this series to start the year is built, living a 5S year. I've been in ministry long enough to know that share is the mushy peas 
of the five habits of a Jesus follower. Occasionally, if we are feeling guilty because of a sermon that we have heard or because of a testimony of someone sharing their faith in our small group or Sunday school class, we may kind of work up the courage to share briefly, you know, not chew, just do it super quick, get it out of the way, and say, okay, well, I've, I've done it. Now, I get it. I really do. I, I, I really do. I, I'll confess that I struggle personally with this particular habit more than I struggle with any of the others. Sharing, though, is inseparable from what it means to follow Jesus. The Bible knows nothing of someone who is a committed follower of Jesus without the habit of share. If we aren't doing it, we are nowhere near the follower of Jesus that we claim to be. That's why in our framework for understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which is driving us here at Blue Valley, which is the core of this message series and the core of our ministry, we understood that we simply absolutely had to include the habit of share. And my prayer today is to as passionately challenge you with the message that it has already challenged me. It is not my purpose, I promise you, to heap upon you guilt or to heap upon you legalism, but it is my purpose to honestly show you what God's Word says about this indispensable component to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and we'll do that after we pray. Join me, please. Father, be with us in this time, this important time, to be challenged in ways that are uncomfortable, but which are absolutely necessary and indispensable if we claim to be followers of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. The question that's going to drive today's message is simply this. Why? Why is sharing not an option but a must for followers of Jesus? A couple of reasons I want to give you. First of all, we have a command to share our faith, which we get. We understand. We have a command to share our faith. We all get that on some level, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded that that command is not coming from the pastor, but it's actually coming from the Lord himself. The command to follow Jesus by sharing was demanded, obviously, by Christ himself. I want you to listen to his famous last words to his disciples, which probably most of us, if we've grown up in church, know by heart or by heart-ish, as recorded in the last few verses of the book of Matthew, where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's the thing. All four of the books that start the New Testament that detail for us the life of Christ have Jesus saying these same words, uh, sometimes before his death, sometimes after his resurrection, letting us know that Jesus didn't just say this to say goodbye. He was saying it a lot. The book of Acts begins the book with this demand by Christ that his followers share Jesus everywhere as they went. And the book itself is showing how seriously they took that demand from their lips. The gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome, from Jews to Gentiles. 
Gentiles. The early church faced many, many issues in their early years, but the obvious great priority of the church in the New Testament was the task of sharing about Jesus in their world everywhere they went. But it was more than just the words via the demand of Jesus that drove them. Something else drove them, which maybe we've not thought about, and it's this. It was modeled by Jesus. Sharing about Jesus was modeled by Jesus. Now, that's easy to overlook because evangelism, essentially for Jesus, means I'm going to talk about myself for a while. But the great topic of his teaching was himself. There's a great little book. I encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's by John Stott. It's called Basic Christianity. And in that book, he wrote this, the most striking feature of the teaching of Jesus is that he was constantly talking about himself. He made startling claims about who he was, and he was always very clear about what it is that he came to do. And in case any of us missed it, he modeled it, not just in what he said, but before the very eyes of those watching him. If, if you would please, why don't you find Luke chapter 19 in your copy of God's Word. In this passage, You'll be familiar with it very quickly. We're told that Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem for the culminating events of his life and ministry here on earth. And in Jericho, he encounters a man named Zacchaeus, a vertically challenged tax collector. It was a despised profession, and it was despised because it was essentially governmentally sanctioned robbery. Do not go off on a tangent in your little ideological head at the moment thinking, well, boy, it sure is. We're not going there, all right? Here's why it was government-sanctioned robbery in Jesus' day. A tax collector could charge whatever he wanted and then give the required amount to Rome, and he could keep the extra for himself. So Zacchaeus, Jericho, not super popular, not on the city council. Now, Knowing that Jesus was about to pass by, Zacchaeus, for whatever reason, is desperate to catch a glimpse. And his short stature poses a problem in getting to see him. We know that from the little song. But his stature was not his problem. His stature was not what was keeping him from seeing Jesus. The crowd was his biggest problem. Not his stature, the people crowding around Jesus was his biggest problem. The dialogue goes something like this in summary of Luke 19. Zacchaeus saying, excuse me, short guy in the back. Can, can you let me get up to the front? You can see over me. The crowd saying, are you kidding? You're a sinner. You don't deserve a look at a holy man like Jesus. You stay at the back. He, he, he could not see Jesus because of them not because he was short. Just looking at Luke's wording and the crowd's general assessment of Zacchaeus as a sinner, undeserving of a glimpse. In verse 7 of Luke 19, Luke's telling us that the crowd was the obstacle because they were refusing Zacchaeus with the privilege of being able to see Jesus. So he does a very undignified thing, doesn't he? Grown man climbs a tree. And his persistence in the face of the crowd's opposition is rewarded. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I'm going to your house today. 
for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The crowd is disgusted. Why on earth would a man like Jesus go to such a vile, despised person's house? That's the question on their mind. Why would you do that? And after Zacchaeus' transformation, he comes out and he answers with these words. The Son of Man came to seek and save, verse 10, the lost. Jesus' answer is simple. I called him down. I went to his house because that's what I came to do. That's the ball game. That's what I came to do. And that is why he demanded it of his followers. That's why it is a command. How can we authentically say that we are followers of Jesus if we do not follow him in doing what he did? This is the reason it is in our five habits. And we can all say of ourselves, well, I'm good at the other four. But I, I got all kinds of reasons and excuses that I, that I won't do the fifth share. But I still am a great follower of Jesus, right? Well, Jesus said this is what he came to do. And Jesus said go do it to his followers. So if we're not, I go back to what I said earlier, maybe we're not as good at following Jesus as, as what we think that we are. How can we say that we follow Jesus if we don't share? How can we say that we follow Jesus when we isolate ourselves like we do from lost people? The sad fact is that many serious Christians have few, if any, significant relationships with non-Christians. We are practical, social segregationists. There's a great book I read in seminary decades ago now called Reinventing Evangelism by a man named Donald Pastersky. And here's what he wrote in that book, and I've never forgotten it. He says, we sense the world is dangerous to our faith. So we set up subcultures within the larger society, and instead of cultivating significant relationships with people who are outside of God's family, we stifle meaningful contact with the very people who would benefit from experiencing life with serious Christians. What are we doing? We are doing what the people of Jericho did. We are walling off the people in our culture who are desperate to catch a glimpse of Jesus and saying, he's only for us respectable holy people. How can we say that we are great at following Jesus if we aren't following him and doing the thing that he said multiple times he came to do? Jesus commands us, followers of Jesus, with both his verbal demands, and his pattern of life to share. It is not an option if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. And again, on some level, we all get that. But we have become professionals at rationalizing our ways out of 
the demand, figuring out ways to justify being quiet or to just blow it off altogether or to almost do it by saying, come to my church, but never really getting out there and talking about Jesus. That is why we have to be shocked, I think, sometimes to to get moving on this. And so that's why today we, we need to hear that it's not only a, a command to share our faith, we have a moral imperative to share our faith. Meaning that this is something that we have to do if we really claim to care about people or something we have to do if we are good people at all. The reason that we talk more about evangelism than doing it is because we lack this moral imperative. We don't care, really, about the lostness around us except to be angry about it and to either blame the woke mob at the door or the Christian nationalist hordes at the door. We don't care about people who are lost enough to say anything to them at all about their lostness. We'll talk to them about a lot of other things, but we won't talk to them about their lostness. So how do we restore this moral imperative to share? How do we get to not just being demanded to do this by Christ, but having a sense of ought to in our spirit? Uh, My seminary president, when I was working on my master's, wrote a book on evangelism, and in it, something's been very helpful to me. He identifies uh, three consequences uh, to sin in our lives. The first are what he called the relational consequences of sin. He uses the event from the fall in Genesis chapter 3 to illustrate. Prior to sin, Adam and Eve enjoyed an intimate relationship with God. Their sin, however, not only disrupted their relationship with God, it made being with him actually undesirable. It's something that they fled from. They didn't seek him. They hid from him. They could no longer relate to God on his terms because of their sin, nor could they properly relate to one another anymore. When confronted about their sin, Adam said, well, it was her. This this helper that you gave me, it was her. They couldn't relate with one another anymore. So as a result of sin, we cannot properly relate to God and we cannot properly relate to the others around us. Sin has killed our relationships. The second consequence are what we might think of as experiential consequences. And by this, we're talking about the ability to have a totally satisfying life. That's a casualty of sin. It does not mean that you will experience without God no happiness or, or, or contentment. I mean, we're not saying that, but it does mean that whatever you're able to generate in this life will be less than ideal. It'll be less than, than, than what God has intended. It will always be something because of sin. And as a result of sin, we experience struggles 
with our meaning. We see that in our world, don't we? we? We experience struggles with our identity. We experience problems with sickness. We experience struggles with death. And as a result of sin, the world at large experiences unexpected disasters. Life will be filled with many moments for almost everybody of happiness and pleasure, but it will always, always ultimately reflect the reality of pain and suffering at some point or points along the way. There are relational consequences to sin. We can't relate as we should with God or one another. There are experiential consequences of sin, and then obviously there are the eternal consequences of sin, which we've quit talking about in modern life. Hell is a place where unbelievers experience eternal judgment. And the experience of hell is every bit as real and lasts every bit as long as the experience of heaven. And and real people that we really know are headed there just as surely as those of us who know Jesus are headed to heaven. And those in your life classmates, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors have never heard you share about the Jesus who makes all the difference. Why? Because we lack a moral imperative. We want the bar as low as it can get for us to get over, and then as soon as we hop in, we raise it to where no one else can see. That's who we are. We lack a moral imperative. We don't understand the consequences. Other things are more important to us. And I know that there is a tendency for us to want to push back on the idea that that something is more important to us than Jesus, but I want you to think about all of the things in our lives that we are compelled to talk about, our sports allegiances. I mean, we know there's no real cost to not go along with our sport, but we'll, we'll be free to talk about them. But there are other things for which there are huge costs that we feel deeply that we talk about all of the time. We, we talk, for instance, about a state that wants to control or, a, or a, an, an element that wants to overthrow. There, we, we talk about, about a struggle with sexual identity in our world. We'll, we'll talk about something as heinous and evil as abortion. We'll talk about how we should vote and how we should think on a wide variety of issues, but we're mute when it comes to Jesus, and you say, well, Derek, it's just hard. Have you read about the Roman Empire? I mean, are you familiar at all with their history? You had a state that wanted to control everything and to be treated as a god. You had zealots rising up all over the empire seeking to overthrow the government. The, 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 the sexual identity struggle in the ancient Roman Empire would make our struggles today look like a preschool class. Fathers would lay 
their unwanted newborns in the street to let them die of exposure. The, the ancient Roman Empire and the early church in it had far more difficulties and outright persecution than the Western church today has ever thought of. And as important as all of those things were, the role of the state, when does it come time when you should rise up against the state? What about sexual identity? What about abortion? All of those things, as important as those are, the early church, again, experiencing all of that on steroids and only talked about Jesus. That's all that mattered to them. That's all that mattered to them. And they just happened to change the world because they did it. So why don't we talk? Because we have a moral imperative about a host of other admittedly important things, but we have no moral imperative to talk about Jesus. And when you have the blessings of salvation and you know what matters and you know that the people around you are in relational disarray and experiential disarray and have an eternal catastrophe awaiting them. And you know the answer to all of it. And you and I don't say anything about it. It makes us the worst human beings imaginable. And you think, well, I don't like to think about that about myself. You are surrounded by people whose world is burning down, whose house is on fire. And you'll talk to them about what ultimately amounts to nothing more than trivia. But we'll never open our mouths about Jesus. What kind of person does that make us? Especially when it's not just these consequences are in front of you, you've got good news to share. The wages of sin is death. Yes, Romans 6.23 says that, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So because we share about Jesus we have the opportunity for people around us to see their relationships with God and one another restored, life's experiences, maybe not avoided, but, but dealt with in a way that is not debilitating. And heaven awaits at the end of all of that. Those are the blessings of salvation. That is what is ours. And we keep quiet about it. So... If we have a Savior who says, do this, if we have a Savior who showed himself doing it, and if we really believe what we claim to believe about the consequences of sin, then we have no choice if we're going to really authentically with a straight face say that we're followers of Jesus. Th 
but to wake up every single day and say, I will share my story of following Jesus wherever he places me. He's placed me in Leewood. He's placed you in Olathe, placed you in Overland Park, Lewisburg, Missouri. He's placed you there. And you say, well, I just, you know, I just, I'm afraid I'm really going to mess it up. I don't know how many times I've heard that. If I start talking about Jesus, I will, you know, I'll turn somebody into a Satanist. I'm just convinced that I will so jack up the, the, the theology of it. That's for professionals. That's for people like you and the staff that have been to seminary. That's for our elders who are deep in the Word. That's for everybody. Do you think that the people that went everywhere in the first century and turned the Roman world upside down had a flip chart of theology? No. What'd they have? They had their story. They had their story. You've got a story of following Jesus. And you can share that story. Here's your story. To who I was before, how I came to Jesus, what's happened since. Here's my story. I grew up in a Christian home. We never missed church. I got in trouble one time, big time, because I wanted to stay home on Sunday night to watch the $6 million man. We never missed church. But I began to realize when I was in fifth or sixth grade that Jesus wanted more from me than just religious activity. I began to realize that I was a sinner. And I began to realize that the cure for that sin was not going to church. The cure for that sin was to embrace as my own his sacrifice for me on the cross and to surrender my life to follow him. So on March 26, 1978, on a Sunday night, an Easter Sunday night, I I yielded my life to follow Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And since that time, I have been largely a jacked-up mess. I mean, I have, I have done things that have shamed me and more than that have shamed my father. I've stumbled time and time again, but because of the grace of Jesus in me, I stumble forward. And little by little, step by step, I'm becoming more and more like the Jesus that he saved me to be. That's my story. It took me a minute. There are people that I know that would be receptive to hearing that story. I've got to build the relationship with them in order to be able to have that kind of opportunity to share that story. But there are people I know that will let me share that story. There are people that you know that will let you share your story. Let me tell you to do this. I want you to go home. And I want you to, on a piece of paper, write down who you were before, how you came to Jesus, and what's been going on since. You say, that's a pretty neat plan. Well, it's not mine. Paul did it multiple times in the book of Acts. That's where we get it. Here's who I was before Jesus. Here's how I came to Jesus. Here's what's going on now. We can all do that. But listen, listen, it's more than just a neat thing to do when you get home. We are followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. We don't use the word Christian here because that can mean anything anymore in our culture. We use follower of Jesus, which means you follow him in doing what 
he commands us, uh, us to do. And we've talked about surrender. I'll give my earthly and eternal life to Jesus as Savior and Lord. We talked about sustain. I will sustain my walk with Jesus by the power he supplies. We've talked about sacrifice. I will live my life beyond what is comfortable, offer my life beyond what is comfortable in following Jesus. We've uh, talked about shining the life and light of Jesus in the culture around us. But here's where it's going to push us harder than we've ever been pushed. It's to say, let me talk to you about Jesus. Quit crowding the little people around out from a glimpse and go and share the story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.